0: My guest today is the Vice President of Tegas EMEA and here's what some of his colleagues say about him. Exemplary professional are the words that come to mind when I think of David, a genuinely nice guy as well as a highly driven, talented and motivated individual. He's a very driven worker who's a natural knack for leading a team. He exudes an upbeat, energetic, entrepreneurial spirit. David Cashman, you're very welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks, Paul. Pleasure to be joining you today.
0: Delighted you're here. Uh, David, do I detect a a cork accident in there somewhere?
1: Firmly, firmly. Firmly, uh, all right. (laughs) I've been been on the road for for many, many years. Yeah, Proud Glenmire man originally, so rebel true and true. Um, But I've been kind of partially exiled in Waterford for the last kind of 12 or 13 years.
0: Yeah, I saw that for people who listen to this who don't understand the privilege it is to grow up in cork maybe you could share with people what it's like
1: um what well, i think it is uh we, there's certainly a, a sense of notoriety from being from cork we have that uh undying chip on our shoulders that we are the the real capital and we've all seen the meme of cork not cork um but yeah look it, it's it's a beautiful city a beautiful county I, I grew up in in glamour which was at the time was it was was country Um at this mm. stage now it can definitely be classed, classified as a suburb um but yeah i grew up in glamour went to school in 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 cork city in cork school project and uh, spent a lot of my youth in in the city playing basketball with 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 Neptune and playing rugby with the likes of cork and, and Highfield etc but uh yeah, Cork is a, is a special place. We used to be a stronghold in football in GA. It's been a while since we picked up a bit of silverware, but uh, yeah, real, real proud sport in County. Mm.
0: That might change tomorrow. Um, Hopefully. Who knows? Hopefully. Uh, but you went to Rockwell, where you were a rugby head as well.
1: Yeah, uh, absolutely. I went to, to Rockwell for fifth and sixth year. I, I was playing basketball quite competitively. In my In my early teens, with, with Neptune, and I was fortunate enough to play for Cork for a few years, and um, yeah, I got a real Gra for for rugby, and I played it kind of intermittently, um, but I kind of mm-hmm. fell in love with it again around the time of the the, the, the transferring from the amateur to the professional area era, era um, mm-hmm. and I went up to Rockwood for fifth and sixth year my mother probably thinks that it was led on an an academic spree maybe i was leaning a little bit more into the (laughs) into the sporting side of things but was uh, fortunate enough to be there for two years and uh, made it onto the immortal wall of the senior cup team for for my second year there
0: nice um i wanted to ask you about when you were younger growing up maybe seven eight years of age did you have any sense of what what you wanted to be when you were older oh yeah
1: Yeah, it's, um, it, that's, a, that's, a, that's a great question and I, had a, I definitely had an answer at the time, but I think uh, as I elaborate on it, it was probably for all the wrong reasons. Um, I think from an early age I wanted to, I wanted to be my own boss. Um, I wanted mm. to, to have my own company. I, I grew up in, in a, I came from a farming background. Um, so essentially you know they're entrepreneurs of, of the land but my grandfather was a real, a real inspiration to me he left the North Mon um, after the Intercert as it was at the time because he had to go home and help on the farm but he had a real community um, aspect to him and he ultimately founded um, CMP Milk in, in Cork and was actually um, one of the founders of Dairy Gold um, mm. so he he had quite a quite a business background but driven by community rather than for profit and um, mm. so i i think i kind of always had the 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 insight of of business but i think at that young age i think i was more allured by the freedom um, of being mm. your own boss and um, mm. and carving your own destiny rather than i think what the the nowadays requirement for being your own boss and being a true entrepreneur is that like a severe northern star to to change something significant in the world but yeah absolutely around seven or eight i wanted to i wanted to Mm. be my be my own boss but i think it was more for the Mm. the undefined punctuality times more than anything Mm. Uh,
0: did you try were you at any time a part
1: of your career out on your own a huge amount yeah absolutely okay in my so i i went to college studied auctioneering um and then I went into the, into the world of sales and I was in sales yeah. for, for, for quite a while, everything from Curie's BM, BMW, Curie's Toyota, um, I was in magazines, I was in telecoms, etc. And then funnily enough, when I was going out with my now wife for a period of time, we were both living in Cork and Siobhan made the decision to move back to, to Dungarvan to take on a venture actually, to, to take over a shoe shop that was closing down. Mm. Her mother was in the trade and she said that she would go back and take it on. So uh, we were at that stage in a relationship where we were quite serious and um, I wanted to, to move down to Dungarvan as well. But Dungarvan, this was pretty much just pre-recession um, as things were starting to crack and there was, there was no jobs down there. So that was my kind of opportunity to try and go out on my own. Um, and thankfully, you know, as all 22, 23 year olds, I knew absolutely everything about business in the, at the time and no one could tell me anything better. So um, I actually took a quite a good few punts. Um, I opened up a, a gift shop I think if I could describe it as anything it would probably be a really 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 diluted Kilkenny shop or a Carrie Dunn shop and um, I had that in the shopping centre and then I opened up a, a gym at the same time so kind of doing pay as you go classes spinning and kettlebell classes had become very popular at the time um, so I opened up a pay as you go uh, gym at the same time and then trying to juggle as many things as I possibly could I started importing um, phone accessories as well and, 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 and wholesaling them into it um, so, so I had, a, I had quite, a, quite a punt off working for myself mm. and employing people and, and um, I suppose being that entrepreneur um, back there just around the, around the crash time but ultimately didn't go my way. Mm.
0: Is the freedom then is that, is that a bit of an illusion?
1: And um, no, it's not. It, it, it's not an illusion because the freedom is very much there. But what, I think what's, in, what's absent is structure. And and what's absent is guidance. Um, mm. I think if, if I if I was to, myself and my wife very often joke about it, if I was to have a, probably the best thing that ever happened is that they failed. But if yeah. I was to open them now, they would be completely different businesses due to the fact of, I suppose, the knowledge that, I, that, I've, that I've gathered. And I think for, I suppose, self-describing a young immature business uneducated person that freedom was the wrong thing for me to have at the time and um, because I was probably too easy on myself and quite frankly probably too lazy going like oh i, I, I can i close up a little bit early because i can and um, so so no the freedom is very much there but in fact it was probably a kryptonite to, to to the wrong person in the wrong stage of the revolution which i was at that point
0: yeah no that makes that makes real sense and they say as well you're you, you have to go through the failure so that you can go back again and fix all of those things because nobody teaches you. And the thing is, I don't know when you start out, particularly at that age, that you're, you're in learning mode because, as you said, you, you know it all. You're full of enthusiasm, um, and you just want to get out of the traps and get going. So you don't know where the lessons are even. And I think you just have to learn them the hard way but it's the best way in many respects Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and all I can think of is man you must love that woman to move to Waterford that's (laughs) all I say (laughs) love has no bounds I tell you the sacrifices we men make for women (laughs) Uh, yeah I I plead the fifth on that (laughs) (laughs) wise move wise move Um, I want to talk to to you then a little bit about that transition into the professional world of mm-hmm. selling beyond, we've now kind of put the startup phase behind you, the self-employed phase. Uh, what was on your mind? What were you, what were you seeking out?
1: Um, well, I, I'd love to say that it was a really, really thought out and strategized plan, but my hand was ultimately forced um, to, to make a change. Uh, As I said, we were in around the the, the 2008 crash and we were feeling the ripples of it. Um, You know, the businesses that I described to you were ultimately um, anchored in um, disposable money spend. Um, The Like the gyms, ultimately the bigger gyms copped on that, hey, listen, we'll just offer classes for free so people stop paying pay as you go um and then you know i was really heavily in the gift side so look ultimately in like april of that year i think it was about 2, 3, 2 12 213 and um, it would the, the businesses due to just not being viable anymore and that that was extremely extremely tough for for a young fella who still at the time couldn't take probably lessons from other people or guidance from other people and mm-hmm. um, and uh you know we ha- had to sit down and it was an emotional time and i spoke with siobhan about like you know my thing was like I'll find another idea I'll get something else but you know it finally kicked in and it was a case of look Siobhan was self-employed I I was couldn't be self-employed anymore because it was just too much of a risk and you know we were a young couple and we wanted to go about it so we we made the decision to to um that I would go back and and go look, go look at corporate um and like, like, it's a, it's a, it's a funny kind of circle of events. A few years previous, while I had the the shop open in, in Dungarvan, um, a, a, a friend of ours actually um, had asked me would I come join them in in, in Oracle, um, and, and do sales in Oracle. But sure, at the time I was you know flying high. I'll never need to work for anyone else again. But that summer after after um, closing the businesses, I you know I met them. I met Daven and in, in Cork and. You know, I've told this story before, too, there's, there's, I think there's very few, very few moments in life that really, really catalyst. And one of those moments, I still vividly remember it, standing outside the, the Roachstown Inn in Cork as it, as it was, and uh, Daven asked me, you know, how, how are the businesses going? How are things? And you know, I could have kept brave face and I could have done the typical, I think, probably Irish thing to say, oh, sure, everything's grand, everything's going great. But I said, actually, quite, you know, It's shit. I'm in, I'm in trouble, you know. I've 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 closed them. I was actually only six weeks away from our wedding at the time, and uh, and it was in that moment, just just in a in in a true friendship, like Davna said, mm. hey look, Jer, you know, Jer is bringing um, getting involved, with, uh, scaling up indeed, um, why don't mm. you guys get on get on a call? And it's that moment, like you know, it was that moment where if I had put on a brave face and I di- ultimately didn't tell the truth. I mm-hmm. probably would have missed that, that, um, that stepping stone um, into Indeed. So myself and Jar um, had a chat um, pre and post, I, pre the wedding. I was actually Ooh. doing my final screening calls um, in the airport before I went on honeymoon. Came back, did final, the final interviews and we were, we were only married a, probably two, back from honeymoon probably two weeks. And we had then had to commit for me, for me to move to Dublin Monday to Friday. Um, back when there was absolutely zero option of, of working from home. So um, it was very fortuitous. It was forced, but I think we stayed very honest to, to what, what, the, what the process and what our realities were. And by doing that, I'm, I'm a firm believer in that opened the, the right doors for us.
0: Yeah, that's, a, that's a powerful story. Uh, it, it resonates heavily. I had a very similar experience in 2005 myself where I ran out of road. And it's interesting when the choices... It's First of all, it's the... The tough conversations—they're mm-hmm. not easy—and then, but it's also there's a there's almost a sense of relief when the options run out, yeah. And and then, like yourself, there was another door opened, and it just was natural to go go take that. I'm guessing as well that made for a much better honeymoon for you, knowing that there was this hope on the horizon. Versus what was there maybe six weeks earlier?
1: Insanely. I mean, like, I, you know, we talk about, pre- we talk about pressures and emotional pressures, and I think it's something that, you know, a lot of um, men and professional men our age need to be very, very conscious of that we don't bottle things. It, it's something that's rising, mm. sadly, quite heavily in the country. Um, but yeah, there was, there was huge pressure. I mean, like, we're getting married, I've closed my businesses. Mm you're beginning to leave thoughts creeping, like what are the in-laws thinking about me? They're about to walk their daughter up the aisle and this guy doesn't even have a job. And to their eyes, all he has been is been a, f- a, failed, a failed dreamer and a, fail, a failed mm. businessman. Um, I think mm. w- one thing though that is al- always rung true for me that I've gotten from, from my early ages is, is a work ethic and not nobility about what type of work I do. Um, I tell the story very, very proudly that when it closed, when my business is closed and I didn't have a paycheck, um, I went out and worked in a on a local oyster farm for 8.65 an hour, and um, tied on, tied off. So four four hours on, four hours off. Um, but needless to say, that wasn't, no order to suspect it wasn't the work that I wanted to be doing. Mm. So, like that, when you kind of when I got it off my chest and I said it out loud outside of the four walls of home to to, to have, and next thing you know, like good friends do, they come up with options for you, or they they you know mm. they lay out the cards for you. Yeah, I mean, there was a huge... Uh, the shoulders dropped at the thought of the opportunity and the fact that it had progressed before the wedding, it definitely ma- it made uh, the honeymoon just, a com- I'm sure, a completely different experience as to what it would have been. Because it would have been a... Fa- it would have been a not a fake celebration, but it would have been a fake emotion to be over there being happy and yeah. having yeah. to come home to not knowing what was going to happen next.
0: Yeah, yeah. What did you learn most about yourself throughout the process?
1: Um my lack of I was not able to take advice and that was bedded in I think in security um, that I was fearful that I wouldn't be able to hold my own in a room or that I have this 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 bizarre feeling that I had to know everything and that I had to know what the right thing was to do and um, and when I flash forward to now when I would like to think I'd know a lot more now I, like, I spend the polar opposite amount of time listening than I did talking. Yeah. So I think a, a huge amount of it was trying to probably impress as well by being the voice in the room or the alpha voice in the room. Um, but I think over the years, the learning definitely for me, is as, I, as I look mm. back on it, is like I, I, I lo- you only learn when you're listening.
0: And mm. you said your grandfather went to Northmont and I know you went to Rockwell for the last two years. Did you go to Northmont as well?
1: No, no, no. I went to Glamour College. Glamour, so was that a, was it you said. Yeah.
0: And yeah. I'm, I'm guessing you might be a shade too young for this. Did you get leathered in school?
1: No. No, I okay. didn't. Just a couple, I, to, I, a bit too young.
0: I, I, well, the, re- the reason why I ask is sometimes I wonder. We have this thing, uh, men particularly, where we bottle things up. Now, that's a multifaceted problem. I mm. think it's changing. There's no question. Well, we're talking about this right now, and I've had these conversations with others in the podcast. I wouldn't have imagined that a few years ago. I saw something on LinkedIn today where it was a Dutch guy. Uh, he'd written a book for uh, fathers of uh, uh, premature children who 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 don't make it. Who, you know, who die pre, mm. be, before their term. Um, mm. And he's and the book is something like fathers Grief too. And and it's the whole idea of bring it out. And I told my story of when that happened. And there so many men came back and said, you know, and how are you today? Is everything okay? And mm-hmm. like, I just wouldn't have imagined that or even been comfortable a while ago. And I wondered because I grew up in that, that era where, and I went to Christian Brothers, mm-hmm. uh, which North Mon were Christian Brothers, that's why I asked. And in fact, our principal came from North Mon. Right. Brilliant for hurling, but yeah. now was he a sadist. <laughs> he was a sadist. Mm. And... And there was a sense of you were brought up in front of the class and you had to hold your hand out, right? And and you were getting leathered. And 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 you would do anything but display or let them know this was hurting mm-hmm. you. And you'd mm-hmm. bottle it up and you'd never let them see. You wouldn't cry, you you know, that was it. Because you knew everybody was looking at you. And I think that's that ha- that's that has to have an effect on people mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Now can mm-hmm. it are there benefits to it as well? I'm not advocating. I'm just saying that there's mm-hmm. a, a sense also you can take some positives from in terms of grit and determination yep. and persistence, and yep. and that's just a, an analog for many of the challenges we, I think we have in life that we yeah. decide how you know how do we get through them? Do we push? Do we grit teeth and get through it, or do we whine and complain? Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. so I, I just wondered because it's it's certainly a. I think it's it's changing for the better. There's no question about that, mm-hmm. uh, and long may it last. Yep. But um, and and hats off to you for for that because as I said, if somebody has been there, I know it's it's you feel like such a failure, and you and 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 all of the ideas you had for life and what you were going to be, what you were going to do, and it's only then after a while you can look back and go, I was mad, you know. I have so much yeah. more now in terms of structure, uh, yeah. sh- colleagues, opportunity. But you mm-hmm. don't see that at the time, I think.
1: No, no, you don't. And like, I mean, we can all remember the, you know, the guidance being given to us by our, by our elders and saying, "What, sure, what would they know?" And now here we are sitting in, you know, in the seat with, with trying trying to pass it forward. And I think we, what we can just ultimately do is try and tell our our story in in a in a fashion that will, if a percentage of it lands, if we can just build enough trust with those coming behind us to say, "Hey, listen, we do know it's not a straight line." You know it's your you're never as you know uh, you see that thing there was an interview with like some of the big actors and Tom Hanks Tom Hanks was saying like this time too shall pass and like Mm. no matter how good you are no matter on your best day and you know this is brilliant this time too shall pass and on your worst day you know we have to recognize this time too shall pass Um, Mm. and I think we we just need to be able to um, you know send the lift back down to say look yeah there's tough days but But you know, you have to get up and you have to fight them. And I think, you know, there is absolutely to your point a little while ago, you know, things have probably softened. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of that was absolutely necessary. I think we just just also need to be cautious of an Mm overcorrection. That, you know, you know, some of the best companies and families and communities and clubs have been built on grit and tough work. And it's Mm -hmm. okay to have a tough day. And you know, it's okay to have a tough week, a tough month, a tough year. Um, and that's, that's, that's just some things that we have to do because this time too shall pass so um, mm. we just need to make sure that the, that, that the grit factor is still in there and that we still enable yeah. people to be able to differentiate
0: mm. Who did you most want to be like when you were younger?
1: Um, probably a couple of different people a lot of them was sporting I think in my, mm. my early stages everybody wants to be like Mike I was a huge Michael Jordan fan um, you know we just want to uh, just fanatical basketball fan and um, and then I think as I as I got into the into the rugby um oh, I think that was a real part of where I started getting infatuated with leadership we back if you go back to the time when we were when I was looking at Michael Jordan the amount of exposure that we would have had to, to those players of that era due to the lack of Social media uh, interviews youtube we 'd no idea how they actually operated. All we did was saw the mute on the court and we saw all we saw was their mm. performance. But we saw none of the uh, the repeatable approach that they did and I think as I, as I started playing rugby and as, we kinda, as I kind of moved into that more kind of professional setup, which was the, the Rockwell Senior Cup team and how you go about things, and we started talking about leadership, and I started mm. levitating then to the words the likes of you know, Brian O'Driscoll and, and, and Paul O'Connell, and I was started becoming fascinated with like, their mindset and, and how, they, how they approach things. Um, so, yeah, like they, they would have been key people that I, that I would have really um, admired. But then, again, everything, everything evolves. And then as you continue to read the books of, of some of these great legends, and you see, like them, like we were just talking about, you're from the outside in, oh, I want to be a professional sports sportsperson. You know, they have the life. But you see the downtimes and the, the the mental trauma of of losses and pressure and crowd pressure that they went through as well. Do you know, so I think I think a, a lot of these um, sports people have done a great job at, at um, broadcasting the fact that you know it's not all rosy just because you see us for ninety mm. minutes a week and you think mm. that there were celebrities. And then I think you know naturally as I as I moved on in my career, I have started to focus into <clears throat> more business leaders um and, and, and thought provokers um around the world so mm. i'll
0: come back to you on that one about the business leaders in a moment uh you went to rockwell i'm assuming that you were a boarder at
1: rockwell absolutely yeah
0: how was that experience for you
1: <laughs> i think that was certainly one of the main educations that, that, that we that we got there so mm. um <clears throat> and i think that was also a, kind of a, a wake-up call for me do you know i i am um, I played basketball before I went there, and the next thing I played rugby and there was there was a the real boarding school element to it. Do you know what I mean like there was the we went in his fifth years I went in a couple went in about two or three months late. The dorm raids are are true where they, they come in with the you know the swimming cap and the swimming goggles and the hurleys and the golf clubs and you get you know you get a bit of a a bit of a hazing you know and and a bit of a you know welcome to the club piece but you know it, it, it toughens you up and ultimately you 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 live with people and i think it was a huge education for me early doors to actually understand what it was like to live with other people who don't have my agenda number one on their list because it was myself and my mum growing up and um, the doughty boys as she would call me and my grandmother could call me but up there it was like Joe. You know, you're just just one one like everyone else so um yeah i loved it i mean mm. gee just come to think of it now i think we're nearly 23 yeah nearly 15 years out um mm. it's a uh, it's kind of it's weird it's almost like a like a, a brotherhood and like there was there was mm. fantastic female friends of mine as well who like it was a mixed school um what was it i didn't know yeah that yeah so it was so you'd you'd the the boys borders were on on campus so in the school um, obviously you'd you'd uh, male and fe- boy and girl um day pupils but there was a there was a sprinkling of, of female borders as well but they were mm. they were uh, conveniently dotted in houses off campus uh, to, so to to keep them yeah. keep them away but um yeah. Yeah, like the com- the camaraderie and like the entertainment that we used to get up to and like just the the banter is something that I that I'll that I'll cherish forever. To be honest, it's something that I'm supremely proud of, um, mm. and I think it was a really great human uh, human education for me. Really,
0: mm. I only knew one person who went there. It was uh, the legendary Gary Halpin, but that was ah, yeah. before your time. Mm-hmm. Um, he was in a class below me in Kilkenny and CBS, and then he disappeared. And mm-hmm. then I met him one day and found that he was he was in Rockwell. Yeah. Mm. And uh, but sadly, I mean, you sadly know why he away went recently, yeah. Yeah, yeah, sadly, he was, a, he was a lovely, lovely guy. It was mm. funny because I remember, you know, just it was his older brother was in my class, and then Gary was a year 50 18 months, maybe younger. And um, then one day I was up in the schoolyard, and I'm behind this giant type of a man, and uh, with cauliflower ears and uh, sure around he had moved in he moved into a house across the way for there were about a year or some post he had back here that was maybe 10 years ago mm. and uh, got, so i got to know him then as an adult and he was such a such a lovely man mm. um tell me um in what you're doing at the moment then what's giving you the greatest sense of satisfaction
1: uh, there's multiple elements um <clears throat> i think if i was to kind of put it in uh, there are kind of a couple of dependencies and sequential pieces here i think um so i got chatting to tegas about a year ago again through a friend saying hey listen this company are coming in via the IDA. they're looking for for an irish mm-hmm. leader would you have a conversation with him jumped on a call um, and tegas were actually heading to um, Paris first and they were looking at London and then the IDA did their, did, did their stellar job into shifting the conversation yeah. to green. Yeah. Um, Before you go
0: any further I just want to say for people who are listening to this who are not Irish and don't know what the IDA is oh. maybe you could just, just explain briefly what the IDA is because I think they're uh,
1: great. Absolutely so they are basically our A-team that we send overseas to tell the Irish story as to why you should land your company in Ireland as opposed to um mainland europe or any other country so if you're expanding out of typically it's out of america but they they will work with with any country that's looking to mm-hmm. access the rich rich um, toolbox that we have in ireland which is you know multilingual talent you know phenomenal work-life balance uh, and ultimately what they do their their job is to to bring these expanding companies on onshore to show them what we have to offer in the hope that they consider um landing and expanding their businesses in, in we Ireland. They should hire and you,
0: because that's a great sales pitch for them.
1: <laughs> oh, maybe, maybe, maybe down the yeah. line, maybe down the line. Yeah. But anyway,
0: sorry, I cut across what you were saying about Teague yeah. is coming over. and
1: Yeah. yeah. So I, we were, we were, we were knee deep in COVID and um, we got into conversation. We spent, I spent the entire last summer getting to know the founders over Zoom. Um, and the plan was that they were going to, to, to Dublin and um, mm. and again myself and Siobhan said look this is a really great opportunity to take on the uh, the lead role of, of this expanding company um, and we had committed in our own minds that you know I would go to Dublin three days a week to to scale it but you know we I've always been supremely passionate about the southeast since I've gotten mm. here I've recognized that it's an unpolished uh, a diamond and like there's it's just underutilized. So I've been trying to beat this drum for quite a while. I brought jobs to, to Dungarvan in my, my last role as a kind of a hub. Um, but cut a long story short, and I think it's testament to TIGAS to when we were probably at the one yard line, we were both saying, yeah, we can work together. Like Tegas said, hey, listen, you speak, you speak so passionately about Waterford. Um, are there pros and cons for us to, to land the, the, the company in Waterford as opposed to Dublin? So they gave me two weeks. I kinda had to put my money where my mouth is, and they mm. gave me two weeks to go in and do the due diligence because it's one thing to talk about it, but when you've got to actually yeah. game play out your your you know, your your talent production line uh, and your and your feasibility, we needed to put the numbers in place. But to, to come back around to your question, what gave me supreme satisfaction was then in in in, in November when we announced a hundred jobs for Waterford. Um yeah. And jobs that we typically haven't seen down here before, you know, there's pharma. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have a lot of, lot of, I suppose, entry level call, uh, call center mm-hmm. and tech support jobs. But to be bringing in a fintech company uh, that's operating in the you know private equity, venture capital, hedge fund space uh, and, and supporting some really, really AAA brands from around the world. Um, it was just that gives me such huge satisfaction to be able to create jobs in the region because I felt quite frankly so pissed off you know eight nine years ago that I was having to get a train up to Dublin on a Sunday morning if you think about the illogical of this I was driving from Dungarvan to Waterford to get the train to Dublin to call the UK that's essentially what I was doing like that that because such was the way of life back then there was no remote working and that's yeah. what that's what the majority of inside sales and you know customer mm, facing yeah. um, companies are doing in Dublin people yeah. are facing this massive commute. So to be able to, 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 to change that was, was yeah. a, hu- that's a huge thing for me.
0: Yeah, yeah, interesting. You were in, when you were in Indeed, I know you were in a leadership position because one of the people who gave you a testimonial on LinkedIn was Derek O'Reilly. And I know Derek from years ago. He was on a, on a program I was, I was running. Um, and I knew him through the Junior Chamber and mm-hmm. a few of the other things that he's doing, great guy. Um, um, what I wanted to really spend some time on was understanding your own uh, transition from individual contributor to that first time where you're now managing others and yeah. what that was like for you. Can you just describe the kind of the, the bumps you had to overcome, what you learned about yourself and what lessons you've learned from, from all of the experience?
1: It's such a critical transition, uh, and I think no company can spend enough time and um, putting up the guardrails for those that have to do it within the company. Um, <clears throat> it was it was tough. You know, I mean, I had gone from being a, you know a top individual contributor, being there from the from the early days when we were small numbers, we were just literally forty people in in a service office in State Street to you know being the the monster that it is now, <clears throat> but. Transitioning across and thinking that I just need to get everybody to do things the way I do things, and then and then we'll and then we'll all hit numbers. Uh, and again, I think definitely what crept in again because I had responsibility was I, I genuinely feel it was for the gen, for the right reasons. Is I clamped down on control and I was you know nitpicking and and pinging people too often. Why is this? And trying to overkill by numbers and metrics and making sure that I had my hand on every single lever. Um, and that pissed people off. And I, was, I wasn't um, well enough educated to the, to the understanding of people work in different ways. They have different approaches. And I think you know, we were the first breed of, of transition into leadership that had been promoted from within in, 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 in Indeed, and Indeed did a fantastic job then in terms of upskilling us. But I suppose to, to bring it down to, to basics, you know, I've, I've been on a lot of teams, I've captained a lot of teams, and you know when you don't have the dressing room. And it's, a, mm-hmm. it's an awful place to be. You know, it's all great when you're winning. You know, anybody can go out and, maybe a flip statement, but anybody can, you know, can, can lead a winning team but can you lead a team when you're down? And, and when, when, you're, when you're not hitting it, how, how do you go about it? And we, we were down and I was actually taking over a division that was, was not um, performing to the best of its ability. Um, and I, I remember a, a, I, got, I got advice from an outside mentor saying, hey listen, I just don't think I'm holding the dressing room here. And the advice was just ask them. Ask them what you can do better. And I still remember it, inside the Stevens Green office, brought them all into a all into room and I stood up the front and I said hey listen I know I'm not getting this 100% right I like to think that there's things that I I am getting right um, but I know that there's room for improvement and I asked I asked um, everybody to write down uh, two things that they felt I could do better or that they would like me to to change and just to try and try and save my emotional state I asked them to write down one good thing that I was doing um, <laughs> and and, yeah. and and I and I and I offered like, I, I offered severe anonymity. I said, okay, okay, I yes. want one per- I want one person to to then transcribe them, type them up, and that person can be the the, the point of, um of um of articulation, the point of, of documentation mm-hmm. to me. And I got that I got, got I got sent that on a Friday, so I I got the train home on a Friday, listening reading um a document that was sixty six percent um mm. uh, how do we say constructive. Do better. Do, you know? do better. Yeah. yeah stop stop pinging me on a, on a on a thursday evening stop stop yeah. messing and, and me, you know
0: talk to me about what i'm interested in is where the common threads i mean you're always going to have outliers somebody complains about one thing but the common yeah. ones what, what did you hear coming through and what did
1: you do about it um uh, lack lack of a sustained um, focused goal apart from the, the company mission so mm. changing my focus into reacting to what is happening right here, right now, kind of going, we need to focus on calls. Actually, no, we need to focus on talk time, or we need to focus on on proposals, um, and that people felt that, you know, I wasn't giving enough of a test run on something that we we're trialing, and that I was maybe canning it too quickly, uh, and mm. then just jumping on to something else, and then mm. um, also also was was I was probably reacting um, too emotionally. To, to mm. things not working quick enough, they they were they were they were definitely the the major things that, and as I look at it on what the the roll up macro of all that was, is that I needed to approach the job with a lot more calmness.
0: Interesting, and I'm wondering where is, is that something that was deep in your personality or was it something that was conditioned in that I can imagine in some of the businesses you were in, the retail businesses, you do have to react in the moment. You're not thinking a month down the line. You're thinking who just walked in the door. Uh, sports may be something similar as well. You know, it's it's where does the ball land and what do I do with it now? Mm. Um, so I'm wondering, is it is it the con- was it conditioning from your background or was it just uh, something that you kind of grew, grew up with and was always there and you had to fight hard to overcome it?
1: I I think it goes back to something that we spoke about earlier in the chat, Paul, which was the case of this feeling that I needed to know the answer to everything Mm. Uh, and that, you know, I was going to make swift, sharp, you know, needle moving decisions every day, which is not the case. Um, Mm. so, and I was again, broadcasting too much as opposed to listening to the people that are really closest to the action and um, so and, and I, I've, I've definitely learned that over the last 10 years that like you're going into any role like you're spending especially in leadership now you're spending three to six months observing it's pointless going mm. in and trying to say hey listen I'm going to put a magic wand across it overnight it's not going to work so um, it, was, it was a reoccurrence but I think that was the, the inflection point of understanding you don't know everything and it's important to recognize that you don't and that you, you, can, you can spend time working on those gaps, but you do it over a sustained period.
0: It's interesting that because it's almost as if your behavior, uh, coming from a good place, was undermining the very thing you were trying to achieve.
1: Absolutely, yeah. a- a- absolutely. And it, it comes from the best will in the world. And I see it, I still see it happen. I still see it happen where you have you, people who come in and they get frustrated because they can't get people to do what they used to do themselves. And mm-hmm. high performers are used to being in control of their own destiny. And when you step into management, you're ultimately outsourcing your success. And mm-hmm. you need to be able to disseminate that, that, that knowledge. Paul O'Connell failed at his first coaching job in, in France. Because mm-hmm. And he, he went on record saying this, that he, yeah. as the forwards coach in Toulon. He could, He knew what to do, but he couldn't tell them how to do it, and it was it was a, it was a ferocious challenge for him. And like, if yeah. you think about it, you're going you're going from <clears throat> it's a you might as well be going from being a lawyer to a, to a I don't know a dentist. You're doing mm. a completely different job. It's like a teacher. Mm. It's like a teacher who has been teaching primary school or secondary school <clears throat> for a number of years, and then they get promoted to being a principal. Uh, that is a okay you're in the same building but that is a completely different job a completely set of different set of skills Mm. um, and characteristics required and so people you touch on a very 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 important point in people's journey that that is a huge huge chasm that people need to have and companies need to have the guardrails up well in advance and have these incubator periods for them to understand Mm. that when they get in there this is a completely different job
0: Mm. tell me something I'm just curious is uh do companies provide that kind of training? I know they do for sales. You get all sorts of great sales training. I just don't always see it for sales leadership. That's there's the same kind of um, sense of helping people, A, get comfortable in this new skin, and then also breaking down the different skill sets, being able to hire, recruit, performance manage, coach, etc. cetera, which is all very different. Um, yeah, I just I just wanted to get your insights and comments on that.
1: I think there's definitely a lot of room for improvement on it. I think we've come a long way in the last probably seven or eight years, and um, mm. the better companies are getting better at it. Um, but like call a spade a spade, Paul, like that that's expenditure that people need to put in as a below the line cost that isn't bringing you back revenue in the immediate term, uh, mm. and that, that's a hard decision. That's a hard thing to give to a you know small medium sized company that's scaling for your CFO to put some you know, put an evangelist in place to get the real learnings across Them saying, hey, I know this isn't gonna bring you back money this quarter or this half, but it is gonna ultimately help us in, you know, bad hiring, you know, attrition um, a- a- and better scaling. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I think we, we, can, we can definitely get better at it. We, we, in sales specifically, we surface our future leaders primarily on individual performance and i don't think that we inspect and educate enough um, on the on what their future job will be we're always asking oh show like show leadership show accountability that's fine but ultimately you know that, that first jump over is performance management and like that mm. that's a tough gig you know you know i remember i remember <laughs> when one of the f- largest questions questions that i found hardest to answer in my early days is like how do you create accountability like like ha, ha, how do you create accountability from someone uh, and you know i really thought that it was a case of that is there some phrase that i don't know or is there some 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 linguistic way of 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 getting this done but you know again with education and, and being around the block you get to understand that like accountability is 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 the aftermath of creating alignment at the start you know and mm. sitting down with your person and making sure that they have their buy in professionally personally and then ultimately you actually, you actually don't invoke the, the accountability, you create it within them. But you know, I just kept hearing this word about you know, hold them accountable, hold them accountable, and I'm like, I've asked them for their number, they don't have their number, i am you know, asking them to do more. But it, again, it's, it's a, it goes back to the same thing. It's calmness, it's, it's building blocks, it's layers, it's signing up to the vision, mm. you know, attacking the mission, you know, broadcasting the, the, the true behaviors that will enable us to deliver it, and then openly talking about the positive and negative consequences if we don't deliver on those behaviors.
0: Yeah, I'd like to understand that a bit further, just what you mean by alignment, by way of an example, because I had one boss who was brilliant at this. Alistair was his name, and it was in Motorola, and, and I was remote. This was, this was like, what, 1995, wow. and. He was based in the UK. I was based on my own as a remote employee based in Dublin. And he would, whatever the task was, when will that be done, Paul? And I'd give him a date. And I wouldn't hear from him mm-hmm. until that day. Mm-hmm. And he had, and again, going back, and, and Alistair was slow with technology, but it was still 1995. He had what he called a Tickle file, and it was a, 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 one of those old Manila concertina folders that had one, two, all the way up to 31, one for each day of mm-hmm. the, the month and uh, if you said i'll have it on the 15th of the month he would he would just write that on a piece of paper and it would go into 16 every morning he would go if it was the 16th <laughs> of the month he would take out this pile of papers uh, your name would be on it and you'd get a fo- if he hadn't if you hadn't sent it whatever you hadn't delivered you'd get mm-hmm. a call and to me that that was somebody holding me accountable
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, and i did it because i knew that I would get the call if I didn't do it. And the call wouldn't be a comfortable conversation. Yep. And that's the bit I wanted to explore as well because mm-hmm. it's one thing to have the conversation up front and, and get the commitment. Mm-hmm. But it's it's easy to commit to something when you don't have the pressure of delivery. Yep. Then all the other stuff comes along. And, I'm, and I wanted to kind of get your insights on that bit of it as well is that is... is is there seems to me a danger, because I know I have it. If you're uncomfortable calling somebody up and having the difficult conversation with them, that you might shy away, and then people will kind of think this too shall pass, and if you know there's no consequences.
1: Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm.
0: yeah, I just I wanted to get your insight on that and how important that is, and 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 how do you make it so that you actually don't have to use it?
1: it, it yeah. So it, I, I, in two. In two tracks, you have people who will complete tasks because they must, and they feel they must, or they'll complete tasks because they want to. And I think the, the must is the fear of that, of that phone call, and you know, you get that phone call if you didn't execute on it the first time mm-hmm. round, you have that emotional experience going like, this was uncomfortable, I don't want that to happen again. So mm-hmm. it's a defensive approach to the task, Saying I don't want this to happen, so I'm going to execute on this piece, and that's a tactic that's used consistently, and it, you know it has worked for numerous years. But I think if there will be burnout there, I think if you want somebody to to deliver on tasks to the best of their ability, it comes one step back, and that's alignment as to why why are we doing this? You know, have have I made it very clear to you as your leader? as to why this task that you're completing is important to the company. But have I also understood why you completing this task is important to you? Because what path are you going on? And um, I, I always say that like a, a, a leader has, has three hats. You, you, know, you have the leader leadership hat, you have the coach hat, and then you have the manager hat. And they have to be worn at the very start in the sequential, in a, in a, in a, in a correct sequence. Leadership hat has to go on first. This is the why, this is the broad strokes, this is what we are here to do. You know, mm. and that, that motivational piece that'll get people bought into saying, I'm in, I'm behind this mission. You flip it off and you put on the coach hat and then that's the education piece where you're saying, Hey, listen, these are the best behaviors if you say if you remain non biased to, the execution will actually be the byproduct of it. Mm. And I think uh, you know, our, our jobs as leaders is to try and spend as much time as we possibly can wearing those two hats. Mm. But the reality is, from time to time, we do have to put on that other hat, which is the manager hat, which is like, you haven't got this done, why have you not got this done? Mm. It, this is gonna be a tough, a tough conversation. <clears throat> And obviously that then goes back into retrofitting, you know, what is the performance analysis here in terms of skill and will. But if we're taking the, the, the real positive slant on this and, and going back to the, to the lens of, of accountability, if we've got somebody bought in, we feel we've got them bought in, and it gets to the 15th of the month, and you pull out the tickle file, and you see that, that Johnny hasn't got it done, I think if we've gone down the initial track, it'll be a case of like, I thought you were really had your mindset on that next promotion. It's not a case of why haven't you got this spreadsheet complete? It's like I thought. You know, my understanding from when we spoke was, you know, that you really wanted to flex your muscles on this one and really show, broadcast that mm. you were the person for the job. What has changed? As opposed to, as opposed to putting it into a binary, why did you yes. not do this? Because you're only going to get an excuse on that one. You're only going to get like, oh, my leads are crap, or you know, why it was it was COVID situations, or. You know, you know, sales ops didn't work. Whereas in the other one, you're kind of saying, "Hey, listen, you know, we, we had a, we had a you know an emotional understanding that you were on you were on the press farthest. So, what what has changed on your side? Because last last conversation I had, you were going to move hell in high water to to get it done.
0: That's brilliant. And I, do you know what? I'd never thought of it that way. And as you were talking about it, it really resonated with me because. I'm on a diet at the moment. I've lost 10 pounds in the last Good four man. or five weeks or so, right? Congrats. And, and it, was, it was important. I got to that stage where I thought, <coughs> I need to do this, right? So there was motive there. But there's, there's a lot of slips between that initial motive and the end goal. And there've been a couple of times I might, if I uh, see the peanuts in the jar, for example, and I go to op- t- take it out, and my wife said to me, uh, I thought you wanted to lose weight. Or how if, if you have that, what sort of a setback is that going to be to you, achieving your goal? And that's it. I don't feel like, I don't feel bad. I kind of smile and go, yeah, you're right, and I can put it back. And it's just a reminder, if that's what it is. But if if she had taken a different stance as in to, you know, look at you, you're doing that, you don't have any willpower.
1: Or, or, I'd, or, I'd, or, or I'd almost or say, kind of want to... If if she brought it into into the binary question, why are you eating those peanuts? Mm. Because I want to. Yes. Because I've got because I've got a craving. Why did you eat them? Oh, I just felt like it. But by a, by, by 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 magnifying, a remagnifying the original alignment, which is I've got you know a weight loss goal here, you know, I, that that's the accountability, Paul. I thought you were committed to losing ten pounds, and then you're like, Ugh. Mm. Oh do like, yeah. I said that. I did make an emotional buy into that, and now yeah. I've got now I've got to make this this trade off decision. Like, is this instant gratification or this moment of lapse going to be worth reneging on what I what I what I yeah. what I committed to?
0: And it was funny because on one of the occasions she says, "I bet you hate me now," you know, playfully. <laughs> but but I said to her, "No, actually, I I appreciate it
1: because yeah.
0: every now and again we just do need that little wake up call and delivered and." just the right amount of, kind of orientation back to the original goal, the thing that made you start in the first place.
1: And I think that's a scaled trick that I think mm. a lot of leaders can manage on, that if you take the time at the front end of the quarter um, or whatever, your, whatever your, your selling period is, to mm-hmm. understand what is the buy-in, like what is the achievement, you'll find yourself managing their ambition Rather than their metrics, because mm. you actually are able to lean in. Because if you're having to watch five or six different metrics for like eight or nine different people on on a, on a standard team, you know that's a lot. That's a lot. And you're gonna if you're swan diving into people because this is obviously with the presumption that you've hired talented people that you know can do the job. If you're having to swan dive into isolated metrics, you're gonna be in and out all day long. But if you're able to have that good enough of a buy-in from the start. That verbal emotional contract to say, "Hey Paul, you know, if you see them trending off a little bit, hey Paul, I thought this quarter was about you, you know, putting yourself in the shop window for the senior for the senior gig, mm. and then, then, it, then it then it then it's on them. The manager then ultimately. While obviously we continue to monitor performance and metrics etc., we're having a much more elevated conversation." Um, and that that can be sufficient enough sometimes to get them back on track if you naturally sometimes you've got to go deeper because there's something inherent or something sure. deeper wrong in, in the in the process yeah but it, it makes it more of a scaled operation for the um for the leader
0: that's a really profound takeaway i love it because it because it's simple yeah. it is the manage the ambition not the metrics yeah manage the motivation not the metrics yeah oh, that's really good really good tell me david if you were done with work in the morning financially independent didn't need to work couldn't work how would you spend your days uh,
1: supporting the growth of uh, of startups and creating jobs i think that the okay. the the uh, i i love business i don't find it work um mm. and i i think it, this this actually like it goes back to various different parts of my career um, indeed has the, has the you know the mantra i help people get jobs i thought it was a slogan on a t-shirt for a long time when i was working there initially um, i remember being over in in the midlands in the uk meeting a big client of mine um, in the in the home help space and they, she brought me into the training room and there was about 20 people in the training room entry level jobs midlands uk um, and she asked how many of you how many of you got your job on indeed and about 15 out of the 20 people put their hands up and it really profoundly hit me that day that like, do you know what, being able to create a job or get people a job is a very, very important thing <clears throat> because that, that was 15 households that were getting another pay packet into the house that was enabled, to, in, enabled them to do that. I'm also supremely, supremely protective and um, I suppose invested in the founders of the future because I think these are the people now that are going to carve the world that the, the world my kids are gonna live in. Um, and I think we've gone through a period of founder gouging and um, you know we hear some horrific stories of people's companies being taken from them not getting the right advice money has been practically free for the last 10 years money has been raised incorrectly allocated incorrectly um, and and there's actually been a mindset in in, in in you know cases where like it's just a case of, of roulette with some some checks that are written that are going like I'll just write 10 checks and you know two of them will come off and it'll cover the eight losses and some um, mm. and I, I think you know I, I would apart from naturally spending a lot more time with my family I do think that I would spend a lot of my time um, uh, supporting the ecosystem to ensure that the founders of the future are, are, are building, not just not just tech products, but just building great businesses I, 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 and great products for, for mm. my kids and my grandkids to be able to enjoy.
0: Mm. If you were a Minister of Education and you could make one subject mandatory on the secondary curriculum, what would it be? Oh, that's a tough one. <sighs>
1: That is that's such such a great question you know i I think I think you could lean into some of the easy ones, like you know coding and and, and leadership and whatnot, and as I look at the upcoming generation, I think we are consistently eroding. On emotional intelligence and the ability to read social settings and um, so I, I while I don't have a definitive category to put in there I would say a syllabus that will take a, uh, educate our, our kids the importance of emotional intelligence and the ability to separate online from real life and um,
0: and I, it just concerns fragile? me a lot yeah I'm just wondering where the concern is Do you feel they're too fragile too so- or too soft or something
1: else it, it, all of the, all, uh, heading for all of the above yeah. um, I, I feel we're, we're, we're creating awful tranches of inadequacy they feel inadequate compared to the stuff that they're seeing online um, and yeah. the the are possibly becoming soft because we're glamorizing people who aren't doing traditional work. I'm not hating on those who are who are content mm-hmm. creators and, and you know vloggers and YouTubers etc. Look, that is a new piece. But what, mm-hmm. what what what's ultimately being done there is we are glamorizing, um their their um, their work is easy, and mm-hmm. if you if you actually ca- if you if you cast it back, to what I said earlier in the early days before we had an insight into the, actually the hardship that a lot of sports players had we thought that they hit it easy oh they just mm. you know they train all day they have nice cars they have nice clothes you know they get interviewed etc but we, we we're, and to a huge amount of the content creators like these people spend hours and days you know you know storyboarding. you know like, like you did before yes. this show Paul you know you put in uh, no doubt hours before every show understanding it but people just think that if you turn up and this is what it looks like so I, I think it's, if I was to create a, a piece on it, it would be like, you know, a reality check is too harsh a term, but like, you know, the, the real world. I understand, the yeah. Re- the real yeah. world on it. But, yeah. It'd be nice maybe just,
0: say transition years could be used for something like that. A yeah. uh, Couple of very, very quick questions. Um, this is we're in leaving cert season at the moment if you were back doing your leaving cert right now what uh, what advice would you have to to David doing his leaving cert
1: this time too shall pass so that's nice you know, yeah. I think yeah. um, there's a you know it's, it's tough it's part you know you have to go through it, it you know it's not mm. you have to but like if you've signed up to it go through mm. it give it a hundred percent Um, but win, win lose or draw this mm. time too shall pass
0: okay Desert Island, you're going to be marooned. You don't know if you're ever going to be rescued again. You can only take one item with you. you cannot be a person. What would it be?
1: <laughs> Desert Island. Uh, do you know what? Back to the roots. A basketball and a hoop. It's kept me entertained right, for I days and like that
0: They tend to fall into one of two categories, David. It's either something very practical, like a lighter, or it's Mm. something to entertain myself with. And I know which one you went with. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. I like it. Final question. When your time on this planet is done and there's a book written about your life, what would you like the title of it to be?
1: (sighs) Jeez. The The Great Dad and The Great Friend. Joe yeah, that, that's cool. that's ultimately that they'll be the two they'll, they'll be the two barometers that I'll want to be measured by.
0: Yeah, yeah, I love it, David Cashman. Thank you so much for being my guest today. I thoroughly enjoyed every moment.
1: Thank you. Appreciate it, Paul. Thanks, man.